Lord Jesus Christ, uh, teach us to pray. We're always novices in prayer. Would you teach us anew what it means to pray, to communicate, to commune, to have fellowship with you? In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Our gospel passage today, which is what we're going to be studying, if you want to get, get your Bibles open to Luke 11, 1 to 13. It's one of the more familiar parts of the New Testament. It's the Lord's Prayer, though I, I suspect Luke's version is probably a little less familiar to it. It's this kind of shortened, truncated version. Jesus probably taught the Lord's Prayer on more than one occasion. Uh, and this might have been a certain version of it. Jesus is continuing the intensive instruction on discipleship that it began back in Luke 10 that we dove into a few weeks ago. And this rabbinic module of instruction concludes here with this passage. The narrative shifts after this. It changes. So this is like an ending bookend. And the focus is the centrality of prayer. The centrality of prayer. It's all about prayer, not just the Lord's Prayer part. The parable that follows is as well. So just to give you kind of an eye on what I'm going to do, my purpose isn't just to solely exegete the Lord's Prayer today. We're going to do some of that for certain. But I more want to explore how Jesus answers the question, how should we pray? How should we pray? What does it look like to be a people who are shaped, formed, defined by prayer? What, is it, what does it mean to be a praying people? What does that mean? So in this passage, as I said, we get a truncated version of the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer, in some ways, if you'll forgive me, is kind of poorly named. It's really the disciples' prayer more than anything. Let me give you a little background. So when you followed a rabbi in this day and age, you often had a prayer that defined his disciples, a community prayer that defined that, that particular community based off the teaching of that person. You could tell who a group of disciples followed based off the prayers they prayed. Now, that'll preach. You could tell who a group of disciples followed based off the prayers that they prayed. The Jews had something called the 18 benedictions. The Qumran community had hymns and prayers. And based off this comment in verse 1, evidently John the Baptist's disciples had a prayer. So here's the point. Those community prayers are intended to define and to guide that discipleship community. And that's definitely true of the Lord's Prayer for us. The first thing that we see... In the opening address, when, Jesus, when they're asked, Jesus teaches how to pray, how do we pray? The first thing we see right from the get-go is that prayer centers on God as our Father. God is our Father. So on a profoundly fundamental level, we are His children. We are adopted into His family. And He's a certain kind of Father, which this passage is going to tease out as we move forward. Now, it's always tempting when we talk about prayer to focus on the, the sheer mechanics how to pray, why to pray, when to pray, and so on. But something fundamental is lost when we focus on those things. Jesus begins his instruction on prayer by focusing on a different question. Who? Who? Jesus begins with who we pray to. God the Father. And he invites us into a life of prayer with our Heavenly Father more than he explains the mechanics of how it all works. So because of Jesus' own sonship, we are also able to call God Father, okay? Jesus invites his disciples, indeed he invites all of us to think of God in this way. Ergo, obviously, we are his children. And that makes us brothers and sisters with each other as well. There's something a little bit radical here that Jesus is talking about relationally. 
Jewish prayer rarely addressed God as Father. You can, though you can find precedence for that in Deuteronomy 32, Isaiah 63, other places. So Jesus is suggesting something a little bit radical for most people, even though there was scriptural precedent for this, calling God Father. The word for Father here is an Aramaic word. It's Abba. You heard that word, Abba? We use it sometimes in our prayers to the people. Uh, it's a very intimate term. It's hard to find a, an English equivalent for it. Some have said Daddy. That's perhaps okay. It's maybe a little too casual. Papa might be a good way to think of it. It's a term that evokes intimacy, but also respect. Intimacy and respect. So to call God Abba, again, wasn't common. And yet Jesus invites us into this kind of intimate relationship with the Lord of the universe. To call him Abba, Papa. Now Jesus makes it very clear here. If God is our Father, well that makes us a family. Okay, So we jointly call God Almighty, Abba. And if you read through here, by the way, all the pronouns are y'all. You all do this. You all do that. You all do this. The point is clear. We approach the Lord as his children, as a family. There's no shame in that. Okay? If this is a family, those I pray with, y'all, as the text would say, y'all are my brothers and sisters. Okay? So it's a family communal prayer. It is not an individual prayer. If you notice that about the Lord's Prayer. It's not individual, and we come to God as our Father. So one of the first things I think that's really apparent based off this father-child relationship we have with the Lord is our dependence. Our dependence, right? Children are dependent on their uh, fathers and mothers, on their parents. So the heart and the posture of prayer, the first thing we see, it's this kind of shameless dependence upon God. Dependence. Now my follow-up question to that is, and I think this hits on human nature and certainly hits on us as uh, independently spirited Americans. How do you feel about being dependent? How does that feel? Uh, Most of us prize our independence, don't we? We prize our sense of self-sufficiency. Do we like being tied to anyone for our needs necessarily? Not always. But small children, held up as as an example in the scriptures, they don't seem to mind. Jesus himself was dependent on God the Father. He spoke of drawing strength and guidance from God the Father. So the fatherhood of, of God is over us, okay? That's the first thing that we see. And there's a lot I could say about that, but that's, a, uh, that's just a little bit. So what else do we discover in this version of, of the Lord's Prayer? What else does it tell us about us as children of God? Well, this is verses 2 through 4, if you want to track with me. Speaks of the holiness of God, that hallowed be thy name, right? There's that respect we have. And hallowed means made holy or reverenced. Um, now, someone's name, it talks about hallowed be my name. Someone's name in that day and age, in that culture, stood for a lot more than it does to us. If you spoke, it spoke of someone's life and their calling and sort of the totality of who they were. A name, what's in a name? Well, a lot, biblically. So our Father, whom we love and respect, is holy, okay, set apart, calling us to live a holy life, beckoning us to imitate him. Your kingdom come, uh, in the other versions, in in the Gospels, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here it's just as simple, your kingdom come. Uh, This is a way of saying God wants to see all things set right in creation, okay? No more injustice, no more chaos. He wants what happens in the heavenly realms to match what happens on earth. That's the goal of our worship, in fact, every week on earth as it is in heaven. We labor towards that. 
It's what the scriptures call the redemption of all things. It's a hope and a call for God's reign to be made fully manifest. Your kingdom come. Now, I have to comment on this because there's a real strong now and not yet to this. You heard that phrase, now and not yet? There's a really strong now and not yet about your kingdom come. Jesus taught very often about the coming of his kingdom, announcing it was here. So the ways in which the kingdom of God is present in here right now, in us, in our ministry, in what we're doing. The kingdom of God is here now. Okay, There's the now piece. But there's another sense in which the kingdom isn't fully fulfilled yet. We await the second coming of Jesus to make things fully right. That's that consummation piece. So there's that now, not yet. It's true, but it will be even truer at some point. And it is this for which we act and we pray. Your kingdom come. I think this calls us to be people of hope when we pray. People of hope. Hope is an essential element when we pray, your kingdom come. Okay. Moving to verse 3, daily bread. Give us our daily bread. I've heard that so many times. Bread is probably used here as an example because it was just a staple, a food staple in that day and age. It has really these profound scriptural resonances elsewhere. The point is about daily sustenance. Think of manna. Think of God bringing manna to the Israelites every day. Provision for the day. That's the connection. We depend upon the Lord day by day. Jesus even calls himself the bread of life to solidify the reality of God's, God the Father's provision for us. And if you read the text closely, it's not just give us daily bread, it's keep giving us. Keep giving us, right? That's a better rendering. There's, it's a continuous present. Lord, keep giving us the each day, making it clear that we should look to God constantly, not just on occasion, now and again. And by the way, we do see this kind of daily dependence if you think back to Luke 9 and 10, we see this kind of daily dependence highlighted in the missionary instructions Jesus gave when he sent out the 12 and the 72. Okay, Daily bread. Daily bread. Dependence. Uh, verse 4. We are to be people of forgiveness. Okay, So we're to be characterized by being forgiving and a reconciling people. In other words, we give freely because God has given his grace to us so lavishly. So we're to be quick to forgive. We're to be eager to forgive. This is to be woven into the fabric of our identity as Christians. It's interesting. The language here, did you notice? It's The language here is of indebtedness, which you hear that in certain versions of the Lord's Prayer, indebtedness. And it speaks to the culture of that day and age. You could literally, in that day and age, find yourself enslaved because of your financial debts, okay? You could go into forced servitude because of your financial debts. So Jesus, what he does is he instead takes a wrecking ball to this whole patronage system. And this is very radical to suggest to forgive someone's debts. Ergo, you set them free from oppression when you do this. Another translation for the word forgiveness is the word release. And think of it in these terms, as in releasing those who are captive or who are subject to you, as in releasing those who are under a yoke of oppression. So there's powerful connotations here of indebtedness to, to what a radical way to live, to go forgive someone's debts. Do not hold that against them. So we're to be people of forgiveness. And the concluding part, speaking of leading us not into temptation, uh, this just speaks of our needfulness of spiritual protection. There are forces, folks, that are set against this family. There are forces, dark forces, 
opposed to God's kingdom reign. Now, we know that God doesn't tempt anyone. If you look at James 1, that makes it clear. I think the meaning here is that we are, again, dependent upon God, the good shepherd, to keep and protect his flock. God the Father can guard our steps. God the Father can keep us from falling. In this, I think Jesus is also encouraging us to basically flee from temptation, to run. It's an honest appraisal of our human nature and of the temptations of the world, the flesh, the devil, those things that are set against us. Lord, deliver us from evil again. There's a posture of dependence here, posture of dependence. That was a hustle through this truncated version of the Lord's Prayer. I'm very aware of that, but I want to be able to get to the other verses in this because they really uh, tie it all together. But at the very least, this truncated version of the Lord's Prayer is a picture of shameless dependence, submission, hope, and trust. Okay? You see that? Dependence, submission, hope, and trust. Those are the things that should define us as a worshiping community. Those are the family values, if you will. To pray as a child who looks up to his or her heavenly father for everything. Physical needs, like daily food, but also spiritual needs, like forgiveness, protection from evil, etc. Okay, Jesus is going to fill out what he means. Because notice, this is in the same pericope, same section of scripture. He's going to fill out this picture of what prayer looks like with a parable. And honestly, this is verses 5 through 8. And I think this one's kind of funny. And this might just be historical distance. I don't know. But I find this a humorous parable. So a Johnny-come-lately friend, he comes looking for bread at midnight. Okay, the father of the house, he has a dilemma. If he chooses to feed his friend... He's going to wake up his whole house to do it. Well, why is that, you say? Well, most houses then were a one-room house, okay? And the whole family would sleep on this raised platform at the, at, in the corner of a room. So the man could not get up and make preparations without waking up the whole family, okay? So and as a reminder, food isn't available on demand in that culture, right? There's no modern preservatives. There's no canning. There's no bottling. This is a small village, no shops, no 24-hour convenience store. Food was prepared daily. That was the general MO, okay? And the other element, which we've been talking about a lot lately, is hospitality. Hospitality is at play here. It's your sacred duty. You receive your guests. You feed them. You take care of them. His friend is in a pinch. He's in a pickle. Now, we probably empathize with the woken-up friend more than the other guy, don't we? Yeah, we woken up, we, we empathize more with the woken up friend, and we think the midnight caller, he's the one who's like pushing the boundaries. But in a hospitality culture of that biblical world, the onus is actually on the woken up friend. He's the one who isn't behaving well necessarily. So the midnight Johnny come lately friend isn't able to provide hospitality, and so his honor is at stake. Okay? So Jesus says that the man won't get out of bed and offer him bread out of friendship. <laughs> The fact that your friend is there asking at midnight, this is an act of, and I want you to remember this phrase, shameless audacity. Shameless audacity. The midnight Johnny-come-lately friend exhibits a certain boldness here, does he not? Midnight. I'll wake you up, you and your family. Come on, hook a brother up. Okay, there is a boldness and a shameless audacity we see here. Now, surely Jesus doesn't mean this about prayer, does he? Oh, indeed, he does. Think of Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with what? Boldness. Boldness. This kind of prayer, this kind of posture has teeth. It's risky. So be shamelessly audacious in prayer? Yes. Be shamelessly audacious in prayer. 
And shamelessness is really the best way to translate that. Some of your Bibles may say persistence because of the persistence of his friend. You know, shamelessness is better. Uh, It really is because it implies a boldness and an audacity based off relationship. Okay? We can be this way with God because he's our father and he loves us. Okay? We can be shamelessly audacious. If we translate this word persistent, it gets problematic. Kind of skews the reading of the parable because it kind of makes sound, if you go with persistence, it makes God sound like he's stingy or maybe he's unaware. It, you know, prayer then becomes a way to like bug God so much so that he gives us what we want. One author says this, but the notion that repeatedly we must bang on the doors of heaven if we were to catch God's attention is hardly an appropriate theology of prayer. Okay, amen. So thus far we've seen, we've seen dependence, we've seen submission, we've seen hope, we've seen trust. Those are in the Lord's Prayer prior to this. With this parable, used to spell it out even more, Jesus adds another virtue in prayer, and that is exactly what I said a minute ago. Shameless audacity. Shameless audacity. Boldness, if you want to do it that way. That's a little short form. But unlike the grudging neighbor who only gives because his friend bugs him enough, Jesus says that instead God is actually ready, waiting, and willing to respond to us. How about that? Jesus further describes what this boldness, what this shameless audacity looks like in verses 9 and 10 when he talks about that ask, seek, and knock. Okay, you've, you've probably heard that tritium before, ask, seek, knock. All these verbs are a continual activity. They're not a one-time affair. Ask, seek, and knock. All of them are continuous. So Jesus is not speaking of a one-time activity, but of those that persist. So in other words, you can think of it this way. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. So keep on seeking. Keep on asking. Keep on knocking. The reality is that in prayer, tell me you understand this, the asking, the seeking, the knocking can actually change us, can't it? Sometimes it can speak to our resolve or lack of resolve, revealing, clarifying the desires of our heart can develop character, asking, the seeking, the knocking. I mean, I hate to put it this way, but on one level, it's like, well, how bad do you want something? Do you want it bad enough to strive for it a little bit? Bad enough to make bold, audacious requests again and again before God to bring it to him? Let me give you a quote from one commentator. This is, good, this is quite a zinger, but it captures what I'm talking about. The lesson is clear. We must not play at prayer, but must show a measure of persistence. It's not that God is unwilling and must be pressed into answering. The whole context makes it clear that he's eager to give. But if we do not want what we are asking for enough to be persistent, we probably don't want it very much. It is not such tepid prayer that is answered. Let me give an example. Think of an Olympic athlete How do they grow and improve as an athlete? They push themselves. (laughs) Persistence, constantly, consistently striving. Discipline, focus, consistency. By facing resistance and overcoming fears, they become stronger. They grow because they're challenged, and they rise to meet that challenge. So if you're undisciplined in prayer, if you don't make much effort, don't expect much of a return or to grow stronger in this area. It's a muscle you need to exercise. So if you're not growing in prayer, it might be because you're not investing in prayer, okay? So verse 9 and 10 beckons us in a sense, just like get in the game, okay? Get in the game. We're beckoned to dogged persistence. 
great example of that was our Old Testament reading this morning. Look at Abraham in Genesis 18. He asks and he keeps on asking. He is bold. He is persistent. He is shamelessly audacious. Lord, don't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. If you can find 50 righteous, okay. If I find 50, I won't do it. But Lord, what about 45? I mean, it feels like an auctioneer. What about 40? <laughs> right? But Lord, what about 30? Okay, fine. If I find 30, I won't. What about 20? If I find 20 righteous, I won't do it. What about 10? Okay. There is no rebuke here from the Lord. Do you notice that? He didn't say, how dare you ask me, what, one, one two, three, four, five, six times. How, how dare you do that? There's no sense of that. Abraham was bold, persistent. He was audacious and shameless about it. And he's commended for it. Now, just to make the point, prayer is not about harassing God, right? Convincing him, changing the mind of someone who's stingy or withholding or reluctant. We can approach the Lord in prayer and ask boldly because he is a good father. God is a good father. That's the focus of verses 11 through 13. Notice, I love this, the prayer begins with fatherhood and it ends with the fatherhood of God. Returns to this idea in verses 11 through 13 of the fatherhood of God. So and it kind of makes this point. If fallible, fallible, excuse me, broken human fathers, if they can give good gifts, right, to their kids, well, God can certainly give something even better. And it uses the example of the Holy Spirit. And this is new, the father giving the Holy Spirit to his his children. It's a promise for the future, and Luke's going to bear that out later. The assurance we have here is that our requests are heard. Okay, God always hears and receives our petitions. He misses nothing. When Ava was younger, one of the things we used to talk about, and we still do occasionally, is that God never sleeps. God's always listening. At any moment, he's ready to hear you, eager to hear you. He listens. He hears, and he's eager to do good to us because he is a good father. God is a good father. Now, some of you may have beat me to the punch and may already go, hold on, there's a caveat here. While God hears and listens, this isn't a blank check promise, is it? Is this a name it and claim it? I'll get anything I ask for. Is that what the scripture is really saying? No, it's not. God doesn't give us everything we ask for. The scripture does promise God will answer us, but it doesn't mean we receive the answer that we want, right? God doesn't give us everything we ask for. Would that be good parenting? Does, that would not, a good father doesn't do this. That would actually, in certain instances, bring harm to his children. But God does answer our prayers in many ways. Sometimes it's with a yes. Sometimes it's with a no. Sometimes it's a wait. Sometimes it's a not yet. Sometimes it's a, I mean, on and on and on. And, but the mysteries underlying why God answers in the ways he does is another sermon altogether. So I have to set that one aside. But it is a mystery, the counsel of God. Now, as we kind of got to the end of this passage, we cranked through 13 verses fairly quickly. But I want to describe two places I think we get stuck in prayer, right? Some fundamental sticking points. And they usually have to deal with where we have doubts, which are normal, right? But see if you can find yourself in, in one of these. I'm going to give you a couple scenarios. There are more, but let me give you a couple, okay? When we pray doubting God's power, you ever have these moments 
you're not really sure you're praying, but in your heart of hearts, you're thinking, I don't, I don't know if God's really mighty. I don't know if he's really sovereign. When we don't believe God is fully capable, how do we pray? How do we pray? So prayer might be something that maybe helps you get through the day, maybe helps you survive. Maybe God is like a benign, divine pen pal who listens really well, but that's about it. He isn't able to do much about anything, right? If we believe in God's sovereign power, prayer then becomes a true provision. It can even become a weapon against evil, driving out demons, healing the sick, all these things. Something in prayer has the power to change darkness into light. That's that thy kingdom come peace. To believe in God's power when we pray, that can move mountains. So do you believe God is powerful and in charge when you pray in your heart of hearts? Do you believe that? That's one area we can get tripped up. Another one, when we pray, doubting that he's actually eager and ready to hear from us, right? He's the good father, right? So he is eager and ready to hear from us. But when we doubt that, that's a problem, right? Some of us might believe that God is sovereign and powerful. We might believe that. In other words, he's able to help. But do we also believe that he's actually eager, that he's actually ready, that he's actually listening, desirous of that, that he works for our good? If we believed, and really this is the heart of this question, if you believe God is good, if you believe God is good with all of who you are, even though we struggle with that sometimes, how might that change our prayers if you believe in the goodness of God and his fatherhood? Do you believe God is eager, ready to hear you, with a good heart towards you? Okay, that's really the heart of that question. And there are other barriers. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit probe your heart on areas you get stuck in prayer, but those are a couple. Maybe you found yourself in there. Okay, let's, let's end here. Uh, let's recap this, this picture of prayer that we've, we've I've painted here, and I'm going to give you the themes that we focused on. There's dependence. There is trust. There is hope. There's shameless audacity, right? Boldness, and there's a measure of persistence. My question is, since this is a communal prayer, which it is, as a community, how can we own what Jesus is saying here? How can we be defined by it without shame to depend on the Lord as King of Kings, as a church, with faith and hope to submit and trust him. How do we do that as King of Kings? And with boldness, with audacity, how do we persist in seeking his face as a church in prayer? One of the things that would be beautiful, wouldn't it be amazing if what we were known for is being people of prayer? Whether or not someone finds their church home here or not, wouldn't it be amazing for them to come away and just go, man, King of kings, those folks, they're people of prayer. They're on their knees. They seek the Lord's face. Now, I say that knowing that some of you are. So take encouragement. Take heart. But I want more of that for us. I want more of that for us. Don't you find it interesting that when Jesus is asked how to pray, he does not give an individualistic answer. I love that he gives a communal answer, right? The Lord's prayer isn't the Lord's prayer unless someone is beside me Praying with me as my brother and or sister. It's the household of God. It's a household prayer. I love it. So friends, let us be a praying community. The gathered family of God seeking his face. Let us be a people on our knees seeking God the Father in faith. Knowing that his heart towards us 
is good. His heart towards us is good. Let us depend on him shamelessly. Let us trust in him shamelessly. Let us hope in him shamelessly, coming before our loving God the Father with boldness. Amen? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.